Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, Reza- now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I- Allison, where, do you, where do you come from, Greg? <laughs> I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the, on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts of dirty stuff, but also parenting stuff. Yeah, so. Check out Childish, new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Very excited to talk to my guest today. She is a comic, actor, podcast host of uh, The Struggle with Candace Thompson. It's Candace Thompson. It'd be weird if she hosted The Struggle with Candace Thompson, but it was someone else. You've seen her on Lights Out with David Spade, where she also was a writer, The New Negroes, The Comment Section, a YouTube series called creepy caress and more hello and welcome hi allison how are you i'm good how are you doing i am you know i'm, I'm getting through this just yeah. like everybody else <laughs> it seems like a particularly hard time for comics who are often on the well in fact i was just listening to an episode of the struggle the most recent one that you did and you were saying that normally comedy is an outlet and you don't have that right now correct yeah, it's, it's, it is therapeutic for us to just get up there and vent and also to find whatever joy we can out of traumatic things. And so since that's been taken away, it is like, there's like a grieving process that's involved with that. It's just like my therapist now just dumped me and I can't, I can't, I'm dealing with this all by myself. Right. And it's, it's hard because. Not only that, but it's just like we, that, that's, you know, our comedy people, like that's our family. And like, we're just not allowed to see anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's, it's been a lot. And then on top of that, it's like then the George Floyd stuff. And then now with the new revelations in the comedy community about <laughs> one of the biggest comics having issues with underage girls. And it's just like, these are people that I know that I work with. And mm-hmm. it's like being a black woman in this is just like, I feel like I have to, it's like we have to pick and choose what to stand up for. But it's like when you're a black woman, you don't have that choice. It's just like, I'm this all the time. I can't stop sticking up for black people. I can't stop fighting for women. It's like my attention has to go to both of those and I'm exhausted. It was interesting hearing you and your co-host and guest talk about the pressures that you feel as a black person to have to make an articulate statement about everything that's going on. And I hadn't really thought about that. I feel, I think white people, first of all, white people are being, some of them are being ridiculous and exhausting right now. But um, I think there's this pressure to like, I get, I, I feel a certain pressure. I hadn't considered the pressure that you must feel right now too. It's, <laughs> It's overwhelming um, 
Because, yeah, like I, I said to uh, some of my friends, I may even sit on that podcast, like two months ago, we were just comics, right? We were comics. Now I'm like, oh, I'm a freedom fighter. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to add abolitionists on my resume now because <laughs> this is what we all out here are doing. And so there, and that that's the thing is like now because we feel like we have that social responsibility to speak out, you know, for the cause because we do have platforms and I feel like, a part of me is all I meditate every day. Like I'm very grounded, like, and I understand, like I do that for my own mental well being and my own joy. Like I have to preserve my own joy and look out for myself. But at the same, and I know people that are just fine doing that. They can do that. And they're like, I'm not going to get involved because it makes me feel awful. And mm-hmm. it's like a part of me would love to do that. I would love to just push everything aside and, you know, compartmentalize what was ever happening right now and not be a part of it. But I feel like I have a responsibility uh, to not for people just like in my peer group, but like for people coming behind me. Like, I feel like this is the time now doors are going to be open because of this. Like, where would we be if Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Frederick Douglass here, if they didn't stand up and they were just like, I'm just going to have to I have to do this now and whatever is good for me right now. I'm not looking out for just me right now. Mm -hmm. I'm looking out for everybody. Right. Um. That responsibility you're talking about, is that something you've always felt? Yes. Um, it's absolutely something I've always felt. And why, like, even when I was a baby in comedy, uh, the stuff I was talking about always had, like, purpose. I was never a comic that was just telling superficial jokes, just, like, uh, about whatever's happening that's just, like, this trivial information. Like, I always felt, like, I'm going to send a message with what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where that came from necessarily. Like neither one of my parents is like political. Like they, I think they just raised me with a conscience and just to, I've always just, they, I looking at the two of them together, it's like there was a mutual respect that I saw with my parents and how they treated other people. And it's just like, I understand coming from a family that has two parents being light skinned as a black person. I, And my parents had money, like they're not like wealthy, but I never had to want or need for anything. So it's like, I acknowledged those privileges and was always like, this is what I know. And I should spread that information. And if that's through comedy, which I think is so cool because it's a universal language, like it's the one thing that we can all that's in every country, everyone knows we all laugh the same. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like, yeah, this is the perfect way to... You know, I'm not, again, I'm not an activist. And that was my, what we were talking about on my podcast. The last episode was like, we all feel like we're activists now, but I'm not, I'm not an activist. I'm just doing what I can to try and help whatever, in any little way that I can. Mm-hmm. Um, you were born in Queens, right? And mm-hmm. lived in Cincinnati. For, like, take me through your childhood and what that was like. Yeah. Yeah. Born in Queens um, uh, with my, I have an older sister and my two parents and we went to private school in Queens and, you know, in, in Queens, it was, everyone looked like me, like whether or not they knew I was black, they thought I was probably Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. whatever they thought they, and, you know, everyone there, it's like, it's just a mix. It's a melting pot. Um, then at around the age of 10, we moved when I was 10, my sister was like 12. We moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. My dad's job got transferred. So, and even then I was like, this is a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there's no way we're going from New York to Cincinnati and this is going to be a smooth transition <laughs> at 10. I knew that. And so what was your dad's job? We, 
he worked, uh, he, so he worked for a company at the time was called Allied and Allied owned, it was a bunch of department stores. So they owned like Macy's, Stearns, Burdines, mm-hmm. Hex. And then at one point, Allied became Federated Department Stores. Oh, yeah. And then I remember that. Mm-hmm, and then it just became Macy's at one point. Mm-hmm. And that's when he retired, like I think five years ago, it was just Macy's at that point. Wasn't the commercial like Federated, 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 Federated? I honestly, I don't remember, but maybe <laughs> it's possible. If I not, I- that's hugely embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Shadow Stevens was the spokesperson in it. Anyway, anyway, moving on to the more it pressing matters. It may have matters. been. Yeah, yeah. No, it may have been. And he was in purchasing mm-hmm. and uh, at, at, at Federated and then became Macy's. And so his job got transferred. And then Cincinnati, you know, that's when I first, that was probably my first experiences with like racism. Because when we moved there, it was what are you? I didn't know. I didn't, I don't know what you are. And my sister, she's, she's darker than me. So no one questioned her. Like you, you look at my sister and you're like, she's definitely black. She might be mixed with something, but she's definitely black. We know that me, it's like, we don't know. So I felt, I felt left out of everything because black people didn't accept me because I'm so light. White people were like, she's not white, but we don't, and we don't know. So we just don't care. So it was just, yeah, we we don't know what this is. She's something. I don't know. Yeah. But so, yeah, I spent a lot of time alone. <laughs> I did have friends, of course. It's not that I was like couldn't make friends, but I was also comfortable being by myself because I felt like that was the only place I felt safe and I could be myself. So that's when I think I started developing a sense of humor was uh, to deflect on my awkwardness, like because I would go and be in groups with people. And when I first learned how to make people laugh, I realized, oh, if I can make them laugh, they're not paying attention to what I am and what and how I, uncomfortable I make them feel because they don't know what box to put me in. So at a young age, I realized I could be funny and I started using that as a defense mechanism. So, yeah, in Cincinnati, it was like uh, end of elementary school, junior high, high school was all in Cincinnati. I went to college in Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Uh, four years. And then I moved to LA uh, probably four years after I graduated from college. What did you major in? I majored in, I was a science major, uh, dietetics. Yeah. So nutrition, health and all that good stuff. Yeah. Which I still, I'm still a health nut. I still like, uh, am all about, I'm vegan now. And like, I've had a whole journey of like giving up meat throughout my whole entire life and I've landed on veganism and yeah, it's serving me well. Um, did you think you were going to go into science? I did. You no, know, I didn't know. Honestly, when I was younger, I was like, I was really, I was always artistic. So at one point I was entertaining, even going to a school for art, for drawing. I wanted to become a cartoonist in animation at one point. And then I, for some reason, decided not to do that. But I was like overweight in high school and had always fluctuated like in my youth, like with just being oh. Always like overweight, never like obese, but like overweight. And at one point I was like, you know what? I want to learn how to eat properly. So I was like, it'd be interesting if I go and learn how to, you know, take care of my health. And so that's what made me decide on dietetics. Uh, and then probably six months before I graduated, I told my parents, mm, do you guys care if I move to LA? <laughs> just waste this degree that you just paid for and move across the country to try and pursue Stand up, not even stand up. I didn't know stand up. I wanted to be in like just writing for television mm-hmm. and acting. So, but I knew then I was like, there's something in me that was like, 
I feel like I'm too goofy to like work in a hospital. <laughs> like, I feel like I'd be cracking jokes if someone just got their foot amputated from diabetes. <laughs> and I was like, that's not appropriate, Candace. So I was like, there was something in me that was like, you, you've always been funny. That's not a, that's not a mistake. I feel like that was a gift that you were given. So let's try and parlay that into something. Can I ask about the um, being overweight? Because I also mm-hmm. ch- whole 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 life of up and down, but mostly overweight when I was younger um, and then lo- kept it off for years and years and years and then had two babies. And now I've now I've, I'm having I'm struggling to get the, that off. But anyway, yes, yes, um, you're very fit right now. Um, do you is having been overweight or being overweight, like, is that part of your identity? I would say yes, only because I feel like, I feel like, you know how, like, you you see somebody that's like super hot and you're just like, not that I'm calling myself super hot, just in general, you know, you see someone that's super hot, like, like, what's his name? Uh, Joe Manganella, do you know who I'm talking about? He's like from True Blood. Yes, yeah. and he dates. Uh, so he's Sophia Vergara, married to. So, yeah. Yes, and the two of them together, I'm like, those people are just gorgeous. And then I'm like, but I've also heard that the two of them are extremely nice people. Mm. And I'm like, they must have been ugly when they were younger, <laughs> or had some type of right. disability or something that they overcame. Because, you know, when you are extremely hot, you don't have to be a nice person. Mm -hmm. Like, you can get away with whatever you want. That's male and female. Like, you can get away. And so I've been told before, I actually actually posted a picture one time of my, like, seventh grade school year picture. And it's so funny to me. Like, my dad, oh, it's actually sixth grade. And my dad at the time said I had Gary Shamling lips. Like... (laughs) You can see I have full lips yeah. anyway. And I had braces on at the same time. And my dad said I had Gary Shamling looks. And I posted that picture online. And one of my friends was like, oh, now I see why you're funny. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, yeah, because of that struggle. So it's like, yeah, the overweightness and the awkward phase that I went through 100% contributed to my personality and why I'm funny. Mm-hmm. Like, again, even the my light-skinnedness made me feel like I didn't belong anywhere. And again, that contributed to my funniness as well. So it is a huge part of my personality. Were were you lonely or sad growing up? I can not say that I was sad. I can say that I did feel loneliness a lot just because, again, the feeling like I didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I was like dressed in black and <laughs> writing sad poetry <laughs> every day. But I think my loneliness was was felt in those times where I would retreat and just go back in my room. And like, I used to write songs back in the day, but they weren't ever sad. They were like, they, they sometimes be about relationships, but I, it was more, I kept that to myself. It was not anything that anyone would describe me as being, they wouldn't be like, Mm -hmm. Candace just feels like she's this lonely chick. I just get this lonely, like whatever it was, loneliness that I felt, I kept that inside and would always, you know, show my joy to everyone else. Even if, even if I didn't feel like I was happy at a time, I would at least give people the uh, understanding or at least help them to at least believe that I was happy. Even at times where I, I didn't like showing my feelings and vulnerabilities when I was growing up at all. How come do you think? 
Um, I think it's because I definitely know that my parents were never really expressive with their feelings. They mm. were more showers. They showed me and my sister. They loved us. They, again, they were, they're great. They're still together. They're still in love. They're the perfect, like, image of what I think everybody aspires to have in a successful marriage and successful parenting relationships. But they, they were just, you know, they were showers. They were like, here, this will, we love you, but we won't really say it. We'll just show you that we'll give you this and make sure you're taken care of. And that's our love. Mm -hmm. And I just, we were in that kind of a family of just like, we don't really talk about our emotions, which I think is a lot of people. They don't, they don't talk about stuff like that. You just keep it inside and, you know, work through it that way. Um, are you, are you more, are you comfortable being vulnerable now? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it took, I didn't get comfortable with my, with like expressing my feelings to people until probably 32. I was like 32. One of my, and one of my good friends, she, it took one of my good friends to tell me like, she was like, you're so defensive, like Mm. all the time. And, you know, we can't, we don't know, we're, we don't perceive ourselves as that it takes it has to take someone else telling you that because we look at ourselves through a completely different lens than someone else and so that's why relationships I feel are so important with uh intimate relationships with people that you're dating or married to and your friends you look at family members like to have these conversations because again you're not the lens you view yourself through is completely skewed. Like you have your own interpretation of how you behave, whereas how you're coming off to someone else is completely different. So I did have a friend that told me you're so defensive. You know, anytime I bring anything up to you, that's like critical, like you jump on me. And it was talking to her and learning through her that I sat back and took everything in that she was saying. And I looked at myself and I was like, wow, like you're right. Like, cause other people have told me this, but I just wasn't listening. And I guess I was at the point in my life where I was mature enough to finally take that in and not get so defensive about it. That's what I was going to ask. Like, I wonder what allowed you to hear it. You think it was just where you were? Absolutely. And, and also I just valued her opinion too. I think mm-hmm. the other people that may have told me that may not have been people that I was ready to hear it from, or I just didn't necessarily care about them as much as I cared about this person or maybe respected them as much as I respected this person. Um, yeah, but also, yeah, I was younger too. So at that point I was older and I was like at, at, at a moment and I also trusted this person. I trusted her and maybe I didn't trust those other people. Wow. She sounds like a very special person to give you this message at that time in your life. Absolutely. And the person that I'm speaking about is my old sketch partner, Brenda Colonna, who was part of the Creepy Caress series. We created that together. So, yes. yeah, she was she was luckily enough like uh, at the time she was married, she's since divorced. But at the time she uh, she had time to do a lot of work on herself. She wasn't necessarily responsible for like having to pay rent or like mm-hmm. to work. And if you think about that, like that's a privilege, like think about the people who we don't have time to work on ourselves, to look at ourselves. We have to go to work. We're taking care of kids. It's just like, I don't have time to do the self-reflection. And she did. And she shared that with me and uh, I'm forever grateful. Yeah. Um, so you came out to LA to get into TV writing and stuff. And so then what, like, how, what was, how did that go for you? What was your first thing that you did out here? My first thing, well, when I first got out here, my only concern was like, okay, Candace, you can't, 
you have to get a job because you don't want to live in your car. (laughs) (laughs) Like that was survival was my first priority. And luckily for me, finding work has never been an issue. Like I knew I wasn't going to find work like in entertainment initially. So I was like, any job that I can take to pay rent will be fine. And I ended up working at a Sylvan Learning Center, (laughs) which is such the wrong place for someone who is insubordinate as I am. (laughs) Like I I have no idea what they were thinking when they hired me. I was like 25 and oh, I could, I was a center manager. Like I was a director of one of the locations and I was like, I don't care what these kids do. I was like in my office, like knitting and just having like, I was DJing. Like I, it was, it was chaos. And so that I did that for, I think maybe like a year. And while I was doing that job and like just getting to meet people and making friends. So that was also a priority. It's like, I need a network of people out here that I can depend and trust and who will help me if I need it. So I made friends, but also I started like dabbling with like the online, like the casting stuff like that. So I would go on there and look for like stupid little non-union jobs that I could do that would kind of get my feet wet um, in entertainment. And so like acting stuff, background, extra stuff I was looking for. Um, even like dancing, cause I used to dance and like singing. I was look, I was looking for any of that stuff. Um, and then as far as the first like time I got involved with anything comedy related was I met a, I met a friend through a mutual friend. I met a man through a mutual friend. He was moving out here to do stand up comedy. And our mutual friend was like, I think you should meet this person. I think you'll get along. I trust him. He's cool. And so that guy moved out here and we immediately, like when he texted me, he was like, yeah, this is so-and-so. I got your number from our mutual friend. And, uh, I, would you want to grab lunch sometime? I was like, sure, let's do, uh, I'm like, I'm down today if you're available. And he was like, yeah, where are you? And I told him where I was and he was like two blocks away from where I was. It was like, this was chemistry. It was kismet. And that guy is still my friend. And he's the one that as soon as we started hanging out, he was like, man, you're funny. He was like, you should go to some open mics with me. And I was like, okay. So we just started going to do like coffee shops in Hollywood, little hole in the wall places, bars and stuff like that. So that's how I first started doing stand up. And that same guy that took me to go to do these stand up open mics He also took me to the Laugh Factory and introduced me to a producer there that was running a sketch. Uh, It was like an improv sketch hybrid Mm -hmm. called the Comedy Playground. And we would like pitch, we would go to the producer of the show, pitch him ideas for a sketch like that night that we were going to perform. And if he liked it, we would improv it on stage. Oh, cool. And yeah, it was so fun. And so... I didn't even realize it at the time because, you know, it's 2007 and it's like 2006, maybe. And it's I'm in a group with Kevin Hart, Tiffany Haddish. Yeah. These are the first people I met in comedy. And so, yeah, like Chris Spencer, like it was just like I'm like, I can't believe I was like working with these people and then look where they are. And so that was my first like experience in standup was more uh through sketch comedy and then I started getting more into standup after I started doing the open mics a little bit more Mm. and did you ever take stand-up classes or improv classes or any of that I did never take (laughs) stand-up classes I have I have strong feelings about stand-up classes oh what are they uh yeah don't do them (laughs) (laughs) 
they're just not necessary. They're not necessary. Like if I were to recommend anything, it would be watch a bunch of stand up comedy, but from like the like the the classics. Like don't I wouldn't say go on Netflix and just pick a stand up mm-hmm. comedy special to watch because I have feelings about a lot of those as well. But I would say go from like study the greats. Look at what they did. Uh, who's your study your favorite of those people that like you admire? Study what they are doing. Study joke structure. Study what it is about them that attracts you to what it is that that you're doing. And just get on, get up, and do open mics. Just practice. It's through repetition. It's through just doing it on stage. You're not gonna. You're not going to really learn anything from someone telling you how to do stand up. You have to do it yourself. Think about like if someone if you were learning how to drive by someone telling you how to drive. Right. And it's not going to affect me. You said you have feelings about Netflix specials. Yeah. Uh, You know, they're just. I'm not going to blame Netflix because they just kind of are doing what a lot of other networks are doing, which is trying to be woke Mm -hmm. and just trying to jump on the bandwagon of what's trendy. So I don't think necessarily that they uh, I think they're looking for the wrong things in in stand up specials. I think they're looking to check boxes instead of just believing in what's funny and saying, oh, I think this is funny. I believe in this particular comedian. Mm -hmm. Let's promote them. They're just like, who's hot right now or who is going to make us not look racist right now? (laughs) And so, yeah, racist or homophobic or transphobic. They're just like, let's put this on because this seems to be what's happening right now. And it's like you're not even (laughs) you're not vetting. I don't feel like they're vetting enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that there are not specials up there that aren't that are that are funny because there are funny ones up there. But I feel like they're just saturating, oversaturating stand up on there without fully being like looking out there and sending people out scouting and seeing what like the actual talent is that is out there before you just throw somebody up there for the label. Right. I don't even know what their scouting or vetting process is. Do you No. At one point I knew they were, you could shoot your own special and they would pay you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, but that changed. I know that changed like maybe five years ago or so, five or six years ago. And now they're just looking for people that can put like 3000 asses in seats. Like I know, I think that that was a prerequisite at one point. And it's like, how about you guys just find what you think is funny? <laughs> like fine, right. but also keep it diverse, keep it diverse. But like, make sure that they're also legitimately like funny people and you know, all this bandwagon stuff. I'm just like, every network is doing the same thing. I feel like they're just looking for what uh, is going to make them look good as a network, as opposed to showcasing talent that they actually believe in. Here's a question. Here's a question that there's probably not even a real answer for, but I'm curious your thoughts on it. I feel like we're about to see a lot of bandwagon jumping and a lot of, people trying to make themselves look good um and and i'm wondering and like what you're what you're what i'm hearing from you is that that strikes you as not authentic and i feel like everyone can kind of like if someone's just trying to check boxes people can see through that um but overall is that still better because it is off it is giving a platform to more voices even if some of the voices are just there because a box is being checked yeah look 
Uh, absolutely. I'm here for the diversity, of course. Like I couldn't be standing here or sitting here as a black woman and be against diversity. My, the thing, the problem is, is that there's, we still need more. Like there's just not the way that they're delving out these opportunities, it's like it's not enough mm-hmm. because the representation is not good enough to satisfy all the needs of what people are asking for. Like, there's a way you're telling me like there's no way to put more than two black women on a on your platform doing stand up specials. Right. Like they're just just put more like they what the problem is, is they're just like oh, well, I did this and that's fine. Like I did this. So there's, there's, there's one gay woman right there. That's fine. Right? Like, no, like just put more, like, it's like, there's a quota that they're trying to fill. And then they think that that's it. But it's like, and again, it's where every group is not a monolith. Like Mm -hmm. just because you put that one representation up, doesn't mean that represents me. Right. You put and and I feel like the gatekeepers are still a bunch of older white men and they're trying to fulfill whatever narrative they have of the stereotype that they see mm-hmm. of certain groups of people. So the, the issue that I have specifically dealing with uh, that I deal with in this industry is that I'm not black enough for these white executives like they're to, telling me right. how to, to be their black. Quota. Exactly. Oh, like so they're telling me I'm not black enough. And I'm like, how are you telling me what black is? And that's defeating the whole purpose of this movement is we're again, we're not a monolith. There are so many ways to be black. Mm-hmm. So you're just playing into the stereotype of this is what a black person is. It's through your lens. That's not what blackness is. Have you been asked to be more black or just like, how is this communicated to you? It's communicated to me through not getting booked for things that I go out for. I've, I've never been told directly to my face I'm not black enough, but I know, ex- I know exactly when it happens because I'll go out for something and then I see the person they cast. I'll know when, oh, this one example is I, uh, I had submitted for a festival, a comedy festival. Oh, not submitted, but been referred to it. There's one festival that you can't submit to. It's kind of like uh, closed off to that. You need to be referred to them. And I had been referred to this one particular comedy festival a few times by different people that they respected. And I'd never been accepted. And then one year I finally get in. And one of the producers of this festival tells me while I'm at the festival that another one of the producers for the festival came up to her and said, I'm booking this other, I think, I think it was another festival she was booking. She was like, I'm booking another festival. Do you know any diverse women that I, that I should have, that I should accept? And she said, oh yeah, Candace Thompson. I just saw her do Baron Vaughn's new Negro show last night. She destroyed, she's great. And this woman said to this other woman, well, she's not dark enough to put on my flyer. Ah! Yeah, you're right. I'm not dark enough to make you not look racist. Right. That's that's what you're saying. Oh, so, so like, <laughs> I just want to punch someone. 
And and what sucks even more is that the woman who said this to, who's telling this to me, was laughing. What was your reaction? My mouth dropped. And I was like, that's not funny. Right. I was like, there's nothing funny about what you just said. But, and so I don't even know if she was telling me to like, just tell me because she thought it was a funny thing that just happened. Or if she was telling me as like, that's fucked up. Yeah. I don't think she was telling me because I think it was just like this. You're not going to believe this funny thing that just happened. Right. And so I was, I, I was floored. But I, again, that's the problem is like, we have these gate, these white gatekeepers in these positions and they don't care. They really don't care about helping. They care about them not looking homophobic, racist, or transphobic. They just want to, they have their own agenda. See, this is, I, and, and by the way, I'm telling myself like, what I think about all this doesn't really matter. So with the caveat that like, I'm not, I'm not trying to center myself, but I do have to just say something about what I see with a lot of white people trying to be anti-racist right now that frustrates yeah. me. I see people like talking about and trying to do something for black people or people of color as a big group and forgetting that like it's comprised of a bunch of individual human beings. And yeah. that just as a person <laughs> makes me so angry. Yeah. Cause that's like, well, I never want someone to feel like, I don't, I don't want to feel, I don't want you to feel like you're speaking for all black women because I don't think that's right. fair to you. You know, it's, it's not like, yeah. every, and, and I think that things would actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to get off this soapbox in a second. No, it's fine. I no, just no. think that things would be so much simpler if people remembered that like it's human being to human being. That's what I think again. And I can't say what everyone wants to be. I know as a human being myself, I just want to be treated like a human being. I don't want to be put into a box. I don't want to be made to speak for all of this kind of people or that kind of people or whatever, because there's some things about me that do fit that, but then there's a lot of things about me that don't. So exactly, no one wants to be objectified or exploited or made to feel other or made to feel like they're just a representative. Well, that's just, and I don't, and yeah. I feel like a lot of that's the, 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 um, facet that I feel like a lot of white people are missing right now. Right. Right. Yeah. But it's, you know, through hopefully conversations like this that people listen to and just, I think just in, just hire more people of color. Mm. <laughs> like it's, it, that's all it literally boils down to is just hire, hire them. <laughs> yeah. Just diversify your, your, whoever is behind the scenes and that those conversations will start happening more. We just need more people in power positions for these things to start changing. Right. Like my manager, my manager was telling me, and she's, she's a Jewish chick, like the conversations that she has, even, you know, post all of this stuff that's happening. These are conversations that are happening now. So it's not like people aren't aware, but she'll still be on phone calls. And it's like with, people who are developing shows and it's just like, she's on a phone call, a zoom call with it's like all, it's all white men. And she's just like, how is this still happening? What right now mm -hmm. you can't even to sit down and take a look at yourself and say, this is, this is a conversation that's the whole country's in an uproar right now because of this. And you still couldn't be like, Hey, let's find somebody, a diverse person to eat to even let's hear their thoughts on this right now that this project that we're working on. So it's like, there's still, it's, it's still like, if it's not relevant now, when is it going to be relevant for you to right. make changes? Right. 
She's like, I'm so sick of being the only woman on these calls and then having to be the one that brings up, well, what about this person? Well, what about this person? And they are all like, what are you talking about? Because she's the only one standing up for women and people of color. Right. Right. And then it makes you go or makes me wonder, like, are they afraid of making a misstep or do they just not care? I think they just don't care. I honestly think, Allison, that a lot of it's just like it's just not even a thought that crosses their mind. Right. To even consider because they're in such their little bubbles mm-hmm. of this is my world and this is what I, when I watch something, this is what I relate to. So this must be what everyone relates to. Right. And it's like, no. And again, if you're not paying attention to that now in this moment with the world being on fire, when are you going to pay attention to it? Yeah. People are fucking disappointing. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you're kinder than me. I just say people are trash. <laughs> Oh, I feel like that's just semantics. <laughs> I kind of think that more thing. So Touché. your podcast, um, The Struggle with Candace Thompson, you uh, have a guest on and then you talk about something that they're struggling with. Do you, mm-hmm. and, and I love it because I feel like I always sort of try to get to that stuff on my show, but just to have it be like called out at the top, I'm like, I wish I had thought of that. Um, do, you, <laughs> do you figure it out ahead of time what it's going to be? Uh for myself, because yeah, I try to do, and I, again, like right now, for because we're in quarantine during a pandemic and a race war, <laughs> we are just, it's an, I can't believe it. I, I, I had to, I'm ending my phone calls and text messages and my Zoom with all my black friends and saying, I have to say to them, be safe out there. They're lynching motherfuckers. Like that's just, just an FYI. That's what, that's how my calls are ending now. And it's so sad. But so in, that was just a sidebar. Yeah. But for myself, I, I'm not doing specific struggles on the podcast right now, just because everyone's struggle is kind of the same right now, Mm -hmm. which is we're all trapped in our homes. So for the quarantine files that I'm doing, I'm not necessarily focusing on struggles. I'm focusing on just making people have a good time and laugh so that people who are listening can have a better day. Uh, but previously and what, what will continue after the, after the pandemic stuff is done and we can carry, carry on with our normal lives again. The purpose of the the struggle was to talk about, obviously, things that I'm struggling with and my guests are struggling with. So my personal struggles, I would usually try and figure out during the week, but mm-hmm. sometimes I might not be struggling with something too severe uh, and I'll end up having to com- like think of something super last minute, 20 minutes in the car on the way to the studio to record. Um, but what's funny is that my the struggles are never ending. Like if I just sit back and sit down for like 10 minutes and like, what's bugging me today? And it's like, oh yeah, you are vegan now and your gas has been out of control. So that, (laughs) that's a real superficial struggle. But again, my struggles that I open the podcast with are to be just to open the show. I try to not spend too more than like 15 or 20 minutes on them. Sometimes they tend to go a little bit longer, unfortunately, but sometimes it works in the favor of the podcast because if the guest comes in with a struggle that is kind of thin and flimsy mm-hmm. and we can't carry on a riffing session about it for 45 minutes, then it works in my favor. Cause I ate up time with my struggle to begin with, but it's, it is interesting because s- some people come in there and I, and it's usually comic based. I usually have comic friends come on, but sometimes I don't, I have regular people come on like my friends or like I have a doctor that came on one time. Who's also my friend. And, uh, it's interesting. Some of the people come in and you can tell the ones that don't want to open up about a real struggle. Mm-hmm. Like, Ones that just come on and they're just like, oh, yeah, so my snacking is a problem. And I'm like, yeah, we all have problems with snacking. Like, who doesn't want to eat a whole bag of potato chips? Like, that's something we all 
struggle with every day. So it's, it's interesting to me because sometimes uh, someone will come on that I don't think is going to be like that. And then they are. And I'm like, interesting. Why don't you want to go deeper? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Do you, what, I have that sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. I was actually just this morning, I was thinking about a comedian who came on who didn't want to talk about anything personal. And, and it's someone like, I, I could tell you off air who it was. Um, yeah, it's like a pretty popular male comedian. And it was fine. But it was like, frustrating for me because I, I like to go deeper. Um, but I think I just, I, I think I stopped trying to like get anywhere. And I just we just stayed sort of on the surface. What when someone comes in and they don't want to go deeper? What do you do? Man, I just start uh, riffing about anything. They could say something and then it would just remind me of something that I saw earlier or like a movie that I wanted to discuss. I'll just change the subject. And it, sometimes I'll go back to it and try to get more out of them. But if you can't, just move on. Well, like there's something else. I'll find something else to laugh at if they don't want to give up any more information or personal stuff. There's There's been some awkward ones, though. I had a Whoo, awkward and so unself-aware. I had a comic come on and I'll say his name because there's a podcast out there and I talked about him on the previous or the episode that came after it because I was still in shock from what had just happened Mm -hmm. the week before. But I had Eric Griffin on. Uh, He's another comedy store person Mm -hmm. and his struggle was the Me Too movement. And like not the way we'd want it to be, right? (laughs) His, yeah, just like, oh, Women want to be treated fairly. It's so annoying. Oh, wow. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. It was like, I have to behave differently now. Oh, boy. That was his struggle. And I'm like, you know, you're on a woman's podcast, right? How did so he, unself-aware. Yeah. How did he not realize how that was going to come off? Allison, this is how unself-aware people are. Yeah. I'm like, did you really just come on my podcast to complain about women's rights? <laughs> <laughs> you're crazy. Yeah. And I'm, I've known Eric for years, not like, well, like we don't hang out and stuff like that. But, you know, at the store, I've been a regular there now for like over like five years now. Like, so I see him and we're on lineups together. And it's like we have conversations in the parking lot. And like, and it's like, oh, <laughs> what was it? What was the reaction? I, you know, sometimes you ever have something so ridiculous happen that you kind of like have an out of body experience. and You start you're floating above yourself yes, watching something. Yeah, like I've had racist shit like that happen to me where I'm just like, <laughs> I, I come out of my body. I've had shit happen to me like racist where I suppress it so much that I forgot it happened. Mm. And I've had someone else who witnessed it come up to me and say, what What about that shit that they just said? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like that. And I'm like, oh, like I forgot. Like I yes. suppressed it. I actually that's so much. I like when there's a witness to shit like that because there's stuff that's <laughs> happened to me. Um <laughs> Where I like, I begin to think I must have imagined that. Like, certainly it did. That didn't really happen. And then, like, this one thing I'm thinking of in particular, my friend reminding, like, telling me about it, and I'm being like, I knew it happened. We, it's like we gaslight ourselves because we can't fathom that that actually, yeah, what someone would really do that, yeah, right. And so with this, it was that like. So much of that conversation, I couldn't even recall afterwards because I was, how did I get through that? Without, and my problem was is that I didn't want to like get angry mm-hmm. because I'm like, I still want this to be entertaining for my listeners. 
And I also wanted it to be like an educational moment for him. So like me yelling at him and he already has a problem with women. It's not going to help the situation. <laughs> right. So like I was like, how do I de like de-escalate my inner feelings so that I can manage this, this and be entertaining and still pleasant to listen to throughout this whole entire thing. Uh, but, oh, but yeah, I had people messaging me like that was the worst podcast guest ever. And I was, they were like, you did a great job though. It's nothing on you. They were like, you were great. Just uh, how does he live his life and right. <laughs> not see the ridiculousness of what he just said? Right. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, speaking of the, and I feel like we could probably name him, but we also don't have to. The, the comedian mm-hmm. that you mentioned at the top, the big comedian who's now. Oh, in, yeah. <laughs> should we say his name and, or no? Yes. I mean, everyone knows. Crystalia. He was one trending on Twitter. Yeah. Crystalia. <laughs> So he is, I'm trying to, th- I, I suppose someone might be listening and not be up on it. Um, but he recently caught heat for soliciting um, sex with underage women. And yes. a lot, like this one woman posted some an email exchange with him. And then like a whole bunch of people came out and said that they had also had similar experiences um, and also he was accused of allegedly like blackmailing some women, um, with new there, like maybe yep. like a, a woman had sent him, or a girl actually had sent him nudes and then he wanted her to come visit him and she didn't want to. And then he threatened to like just some sort of nasty blackmaily behavior too. Um, yes. Was this something that was known in the comedy community? No, no. Not, not to my knowledge. What I knew and what I had always heard for like the, at least the past five years was that he's super creepy in women's DMs online. Mm-hmm. That's all I had ever heard was that. And that, and to me, that was like, oh, so he's just being a man in power, right? <laughs> like that was right to me. I, that's what I, I assume most male celebrities are doing is trying to look for pussy online in their, on their platforms. Mm-hmm. That's just what I assume they're doing because yeah. they can. And so I was like, yeah, he's probably a womanizer for sure. Uh, I never, never once crossed my mind they'd be underage. Never once crossed my mind. And I'd never heard anyone ever suggest that either. Right. And yeah. the, at first, I was like, well, did he know for sure they were underage? But it does seem like he did. Oh, oh, there's receipts. Yeah. There's many. So there's a Twitter account. Oh, I, I oh, meant right. to look up the name. I forget her yeah, name, the, too. Yeah, uh, something in the... Rate- we rate dogs or something. Yes. Yeah. That's it. I believe that's it. And so, yes. Yeah, so she said within, and this was, I think within the first day that the story broke with that first initial tweet that spawned the rest of them. Like she had 400 submissions from girls, women. Right. Yeah. About his antics. And I was like <laughs> 400 within just like 24 hours of, this breaking. And so a lot of them did have, you could see screenshots. He would flirt and they'd say, I'm, she'd say I'm 16 and he would still continue to flirt. There was, I think the youngest one was 14. Oh my God. I didn't see that. Yeah. It's weird how we make these arbitrary things in our head. Like that one elicited that response from me. Like four. Yeah. Like, like, Oh Yeah. yeah. Oh, Oh. And since then, I don't know if you saw, but there's one with Jeff Ross now. No, What's oh, it's bad. One? I saw I saw Joe Rogan, Joey Diaz. Yeah, I didn't that see Jeff Ross. What's the Jeff Ross? Oh one? no, this one's a bad one. This oh, really? is uh, a chick, and apparently she had come forward last year, 
there she's made a whole video uh apparent she's alleging uh at 15 she had like a three-year sexual relationship on and off with jeff ross at when she was 15 back in 1999 Mm. and she has receipts like there's photos of them together. This is her and her in his apartment. She's showing all the photos. Like there's a huge long thread on Twitter. I just, someone just sent it to me today. Um, and the whole, this, this whole situation is completely screwed up. She met him, her father and her moved to, uh, I guess they were in Boston at the time or maybe New York. One of the two, I guess in Boston, cause this, she started working at the Boston comedy club mm-hmm. at like 14 or 15 years old, which is Oh, uh, no, no. Why is there a child working right. in a comedy club surrounded by creeps? <laughs> and so, I mean, that's just, no, you know, it's true. Just the, yeah. it's just the, that's what it is. And so she started working there, got introduced to Jeff Ross, asked the woman, the woman who was booking it, um, the woman who was booking it, if like, she was like, oh, that guy is cute. I, I would love to date him. She's saying this like as a 15 year old girl. And that woman gave her number sh- to Jeff Ross. Mm. And so then they started communicating and her father knew her father asked her who she was talking to one time said, she said, this is Jeff Ross. And this is a quote. Oh, my daughter can date that a guy who was on Letterman any day. This is real Priscilla Presley, Elvis Presley situation. What are we talking about here? Like parents. Wow. Pimping their kids. Right. For celebrity. And oh, and she also admitted that her dad has dated underage girls too. So this is the environment she grew up in. Wow. Yep. Would you have had the, like, what were you like at 14, 15, 16? Would, would you have been like, get away inappropriate famous person? Cause I don't think I would have been, I did not. It's taken. I was so accustomed to dysfunctional relationships and I was so <laughs> like yearning for male attention and for that kind of validation that it it wasn't until recently that I started looking back on a lot of a lot of things in my life and and been like god that those guys were acting in such an inappropriate way and I didn't even realize that right and here's the thing is that you know the onus isn't on us at 14 or 15 to know that right and that's what I think people even us as girls and women we have to realize that like we were in school. Like it's the whole purpose <laughs> right. of school is that we're learning things because we're not people yet. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're here to gather information so that we can become productive members of society. But like we don't have the wherewithal. We you know that's why things get dismissed when a kid does it because I don't right. we don't know what morals are yet. We don't know how to behave properly mm-hmm. yet. We don't know who we are. We don't have impulse uh, control. We don't know what we want. We do things impulsively because we don't know what's right or wrong yet until we get scolded by our parents. And so that's what our parents are for. But unfortunately, so many people, you know, and you'll see that. I don't know. I was just talking about I watched this new Michael Jackson documentary, um, basically in defense of Michael Jackson, Mm. that basically exposed all the people that accused him of this as con artists. And they and they were like, wait, the Finding Neverland? No, 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 no. Oh, yes. Them. They didn't spend too much time on those two guys. They made little statements at the end of the documentary. And according to this documentary, uh, uh, James Safechuck, the one of the guys that was in the documentary with Wade, apparently he had just his he had just been sued for like 20 million dollars. And then right after that, he sues Michael Jackson for like 23 million dollars. Huh. So does this? So I does find that very, <laughs> very interesting and coincidental. Does the documentary but, make you, th- or do you now believe he was innocent? You know what? Here's the thing: is that 
And it sounds crazy. And it, but not really, because a lot of black people were never on board with the Michael Jackson pedophile theory. Uh, just, and not, and it sounds crazy because, yeah, it's like all these people were coming forward. But at the same time, this, I feel like Michael Jackson is a specific case. Mm-hmm. He's so weird and extravagant. And he, his childhood was very abusive. And to me, I looked at Michael Jackson as someone who, was not sexually attracted to anything. Like, I never got any sexual energy from him, from anything. I was like, I don't think he likes men. I don't think he likes women. I don't think he likes kids. I think he just, in his head as a kid, because his childhood was robbed from him. And so I think he just found happiness in children because he had a mental problem. So I feel like he just was like, innocently spending time with kids. And I don't think he ever did anything malicious to those kids. Uh, I never thought that. On top of the fact that I had heard that he had been uh, chemically castrated. Oh, really? When he was younger, so that his voice would stay higher. Oh, I didn't. Oh, wow. And the doctor that uh, was responsible for his death, Conrad Murray, admitted that he had been chemically castrated at one point. Wow. So that on top of the fact that just in my gut, and again, that's not it's not anything tangible, but it's just how I felt. I was like, I feel like people took advantage of him because he was so weird. Mm. And, and yeah, he shouldn't have been sleeping and having kids in his house, whatever. Yes, but... I just always felt there was something behind those accusations. And in the documentary, they show they they have recorded conversations. The very first accusation in 93, uh, the father of the kid who who he said Michael Jackson molested, that guy was a terrible person. Mm. There are audio recordings of him and his lawyer talking about Michael Jackson didn't give me what I want. Let's take him down. And he wanted money. He was trying to get Michael Jackson to buy him a house. He was trying to get Michael to give him money. And Michael was like, no. And Michael and that guy was like, you're going to regret this. And he ruined his life. That, mm. So that was the first. And there are recordings of this. So there's that. And then the other ones all spawned from that. They all used that. There were five accusations total. And at the end of the documentary, they show a statistic from some uh, database. They say uh, molesters. The average of uh, victims that they have is 250, 250 victims. Mm. That's the average pedophile victim count. Michael Jackson had five and all five of them, none of them went to the police. Mm -hmm. None of them. They all went straight to civil court, not even criminal court. They went straight to civil court to get money. That's interesting. All five of them. So I was like too little, probably too little, too late uh, in his situation. But I just always felt like he was just taken advantage of. And I understand why people would disagree with that, but that's just how I felt. And I think a lot of black people also felt that too. I think we had a thing with Michael Jackson that I think some white people just didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. Cause like we just grew up with him and he was kind of like, that's Michael. He would never. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Interesting. I got to see this documentary. Do you remember where it was? Oh yeah. It's on Amazon prime and it's called uh square one square one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what else I got it. This is a, it's a terrible segue. I pride myself on my segues. This one has been terrible, <laughs> but I want to tell you guys about embark breed and health test. It's, this is a DNA test for your dog. Do you have a dog Candace? I don't, but I want one really badly. If you get one, then please use my code and get the Embark DNA test because it it's the most comprehensive of all the tests out there. It scans for over 350 breeds, types, and varieties and screens for over 175 genetic health conditions to help your vet provide the best medical care for your dog. I did this with my dog, Wendy. Uh, Jackie Johnson, who comes on the show, did this a lot. Lisa Curry with her new dog just did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Wait, there's some, I think Renee has done it. Tony, my producer, he got a new dog. Uh, he needs to do it. But, um, yeah, it, uh, really like 
I know people who have done other DNA tests for their dog and it came back that your dog is like, you know, these four breeds or whatever, and then they do embark and it's really dialed in a lot more. And also you can be connected to relatives of your dog, which, uh, Oh, wow. Pretty fun. Yeah. I, I've been communicating yeah. with some of my dog is Wendy and I've been communicating with some of her relatives. And uh, that- were we not were we not stuck in our homes right now? Maybe we could even have a meetup. And Bark was developed by PhDs and veterinarians and is the number one trusted source of breed detection and accuracy. Plus, every dog that gets tested helps contribute to their research and discovering and treating new genetic diseases in dogs to extend the lives of all dogs. This summer, Embark has a limited time offer just for our listeners. Go to EmbarkVet.com now and use promo code BESTFRIEND to get $50 off your dog breed and health kit. So visit EmbarkVet.com and use promo code BESTFRIEND to get $50 off today. EmbarkVet.com and use promo code BESTFRIEND. Um, okay, and we're back. Uh, what was your experience on Lights Out? And is Lights Out over? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, first of all, I would I do want to say that about the embark, I would be terrified to find out that my dog owns slaves. So I don't know if I would have a DNA test. Right. <laughs> my my dog's ancestors own slaves. No. So you got you got to be ready for the info when it comes. <laughs> Everybody, sit down. We're about to find out about Fido. Right. Yeah. Uh, lights out was fantastic. And right now it, it, it did get canceled. Uh, we were a victim of the pandemic. Like literally we left that office thinking, Oh, we'll see each other in in like a few weeks when this whole quarantine thing is done. (laughs) And we found out. So we continued to make stuff digitally for Spade to do, uh, which we were all having a great time doing. And then, uh, word was that Viacom was just hemorrhaging. Mm-hmm. so much money they started panicking they didn't know what to do so they ended up canceling a bunch of their programs and so we were unfortunately a casualty of that uh what i have heard is that there are networks that are interested in picking it up but no one's ready to jump on that yet because they don't know what the landscape is and when this is going to end and so we're all staying very positive spade is still doing monologue jokes on his own personal uh, uh platforms for now and just we all are staying very positive about it. And they, you know, it was my fa- That was, we, I luckily, every writer's room that I've been in has been a great experience. And I know that's not the case for a lot of uh, writers, but for me, it, it's just, I've lucked out in that case. And so this was, they were family, like everyone in there, everyone in there was like, it's fantastic. Like the, the energy from the writer's room to the, production crew to like wardrobe people to like crafty, like we all just got along. And so it was, it was unfortunate that this happened, but I also feel like there was a reason why we didn't get to say goodbye on that last day is because we're not, we don't have to, I feel like we're going to come back. So we're all trying to stay positive about it. That's so great that it was such a, that you guys all got along. Yeah, it was, it was talking about diversity, like so diverse. Like I feel like Brad and Brad Wallach and Tom Brunel are the showrunners. Um, it was their production company. And I feel like they really did their job of like making sure like this is what all everyone's voice in this is going to help this, the, the final product. And it did like, you could see like they had all types of voices in every ass in every department of that production. And it, I think it really showed it was great. Yeah. And so as a writer on the show, what did you, what kinds of things did you work on the monologue? Obviously. Yeah. Monologue jokes for sure. Uh, but also what we would do is, 
So the very, like nine o'clock in the morning, we would come in there. Uh, at one point it was 8.30 in the morning when we first started because we were still kind of, you know, getting our groove together. So we gave ourselves a little bit more time. But once started, things started running more like a machine, we agreed that nine o'clock was going to be the start time for us, which is better because doing stand up, you're out to like sometimes yeah. two o'clock in the morning. So I was like, the later I can come in, the better. And so nine o'clock was the start. As soon as we get in, we go through topics, stuff that's happening, pop culture, that's like headlines. And we would, there was a researcher there. We had researchers there who would pull topics and we'd go through and start riffing on them, like in the room. Like they put one topic up and it's like, boom, 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 around the room, just joke, 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 jokes. And we'd find the ones that had the most meat. Some of them were flimsy. Some of them were great. And so we do that for like 45 minutes. Then Spade would join us. And then he would put his two cents in it. And we, again, like repitch the jokes that we that we just did. And if he liked any of them, you know, he would take those and use those as like intros when he had the panel during the actual like taping of it. So, yeah, we would go through again with him, narrow it down to like the top eight topics that we wanted to cover on that day. And then we would break off into our rooms and go through and write intros for each topic that he would say during rehearsal and uh, subsequent jokes for, we would also come up with jokes for the panelists, like the panelists, we'd know who they were for the Mm -hmm. day. We would each get assigned one. So if there, you know, there was three panelists, uh, was it just three now that I'm thinking about it? Yeah, Yeah. just three panelists. And so uh, we would assign a writer to the panelists and then we would come up with jokes for them and pitch those, riff with them when they came in. Bless you. Thank you. And uh, sketches. We would do sketches too. Like there were pre-taped sketches that would air during the show. So we would work on those, shoot those. Uh, Yeah, there was always something that we were working on in there. Uh, So we stayed pretty busy, but it it didn't feel like work because we were having so much fun. I'm like, literally, you guys, we're getting paid to do this. Mm -hmm. And it was just, just a joy. And Spade was great. Everybody was great. It is funny how at the beginning of this pandemic, it did seem like, yeah, we'll just take a few weeks off and then we'll regroup. Like everything will go back to normal. I don't think any of us realized just how long this, I I remember people saying things like, like people, like little ghosts of the future, like letting you know that like, no, it might last quite a bit longer than we think. But at the beginning, yeah, it was just like, like okay, we're going to shut down for another few weeks, another few weeks, another few weeks. Yeah. I remember getting the first email. Cause I remember the day they sent us home was a Friday. And then we were all, yeah, I'm sure in our heads, we we're like, oh yeah, we'll be gone for like a, like a week or maybe two. And then we got an email saying, yeah, we're going to be on hiatus for like the next two weeks. And then I was like, oh no. And then it just kept getting the, you know, we're watching the news, seeing the numbers right. go up in the hospitals. It's like, I was like, oh, this is not going to end well. And so, but again, none of us thought that the show would get canceled. We never, we were like, oh, we'll just be put on hold <laughs> and then we'll come back when all this is done. So yeah, I guess none of us anticipated the, the damage Co- that it would do. COVID wise, how are you conducting your life now? Like, are you seeing people? Are you, what are you doing? Yeah, uh, well, there's only been two people that I've seen since all of this started, uh, my manager and uh, another friend of mine. And that's been it. Like as far as like any type of social interactions, I'm going to actually have a little social distance dinner with two of my friends tonight, but we're going to eat outside on my patio with our coverings and just (laughs) try and be normal. um, People are starting to do stand-up dates. I don't know who these people are that are 
going to go see stand up. And I know I, I'm sure they're, you know, had they have a minimum, like a maximum amount capacity, they're probably only right. letting maybe I'm hoping like 30 people in. Yeah, I think it's like, right. It's like ha- half capacity, maybe. or Even that seems like a lot. So I don't I don't know. And I guess the size of the venue matters, too. Mm-hmm. I I don't know, but I just don't think that's a concern right now. I'm like, why are, just let it let this pass and then we can get back to it because if it keeps getting worse, then we're going to have to do this all over again. And what's the point? And right. I, I must stand up as much as everybody else, but this is what we're being, this is where we, this is out of our control. So we, I think we just need to chill out and let this run its course before we get back to it. Right. Right. Um, Okay, so I have a segment on my show called Just Me or Everyone, where people write in with things they think or do, and they wonder, is it just me or everyone? And then we weigh in and say whether we also do these things, and uh, have a little bit of, uh, have a song. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Okay, Jennifer Tokaji says, when taking laundry out of the dryer, I take the biggest things like towels, blankets, or jeans out first and put them away so my pile of laundry to fold is smaller. That's smart. I don't do that. I just take the whole big pile and just throw it on the couch and then sort. Yeah, I don't. I take them all out. And it's, it's, an, it's a quick process for me because I have a bad habit of not folding anything. <laughs> I just shove it. <laughs> I shove it in. The drawer, no folding, except towels I'll fold, but like clothing, because then I end up messing it up. Yeah. Going when I'm looking for stuff. So I'm like, why am I folding this if it's just going to get wrinkled and messed up when I'm looking for something? Yeah. I just take my big wad of underwear and socks and smush them into the drawer. No folding with that stuff. There's no organization. Yeah. And I've also got like a lot of piles of stuff around. I'm just a messy person. Um, Okay. Wessam (laughs) says, listening to the 11th hour podcast, I'm not familiar with this podcast. And when they play Trump talking, I now picture Sarah Cooper. Do you know who that is? She's the woman who does those lip sync videos of Trump. that are Oh, yes. 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 She's great. Um, Yes. So I I do not have this experience personally, but I could imagine it happening. Um, Okay. Glort Duality says, when there are a few seconds of static on the radio, I wonder just for a minute if the United States has been attacked and all the stations were wiped out. No, but I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's like, uh, do I want to give myself more anxiety right now? No, I know. I'm good with this amount right now. So no, I don't, I do not do that. Sandy Jean says when I join an Instagram or Facebook live and there are only a few other people watching, I feel obligated to watch until the end. I don't. I can understand that, but I do not. No, (laughs) I refuse. Anytime I see a live, I'm like, no, the only time I've ever clicked on a live is by accident. Yeah. Like some, I don't intentionally do that. Sometimes I will click on them. And then even the most interesting people, I get a little bit bored, which then yeah. just makes me feel better about the fact that I don't do them. Exactly. Um, Pirate says, I use mouthwash first, floss second, and finish by brushing my teeth. That seems all wrong to me. That's not right at all. <laughs> I, I love how we're conclusive. I've recently <laughs> switched from, I used to brush and then floss and i've now switched to flossing and then brushing is that what you that's do? what i do i think floss first brush second 
I only use mouthwash when necessary. Yeah. I don't feel like if I feel like you do it all the time, it's overuse and it's doing more harm than good. Right. Um, but even just switching to flossing first feels like a big upset in my life. <laughs> I had my way. I do it. Um, okay. Oh, Jill Starrett says, wonder what's up with couples who have joint Facebook accounts. Yes. And also some couples have joint email accounts. <laughs> I've, ne- I've, I've never even seen that. I mean, to be fair, I hate Facebook and I'm never on there. Uh, so I've, I've, but I didn't even know that was a thing yeah. as a joint Facebook. No, I don't like it. I don't like that. No, no, it's not a, it's not a mailbox. Um, Okay, Nina Hartley says, I gradually throw away some of my toddler's little plastic toys when I'm cleaning. That little burger bun is gone. Yes, (gasps) I I do that too. Um, I have have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and there's just so many little pieces of plastic things everywhere. And I will decide, you know what? We're never going to need this tiny dinosaur. And so far, I've not been wrong. There has not been one thing. Oh, no, that's not true. We had a toy. (laughs) We have a toy iron. And the piece of wood that was silver colored fell off. And I was so tired of seeing it that I threw it out. (laughs) But other than that, we're fine. And they noticed? No, my husband noticed. Hilarious. (laughs) Um, Okay. Okay. Princess Jen says, wearing a mask makes you acutely aware of your hot ass breath. Yes. 100%. I even think it makes it worse. Mm-hmm. I think it exacerbates the problem. Probably. Yeah. Um, oh, Lee Brun says, I yell moo at cows. No. It's been so long since I've seen cows that I've, I feel like I used to drive past cows more often. Yeah. I would agree with that, especially when I lived, used to live in Ohio, but I never yelled I feel like that's cow calling. Yeah. It's like harassing, <laughs> harassing the cows. Uh, okay. Sarah Kaya Combsen says, I'm going to piggyback off this. This might be region specific. When I see cows while driving, I announce to all occupants of the car that I see cows. Just me, a Midwesterner or everyone. Yeah. I think I would like my memory is of announcing the cows. Cows. Yeah. I I think I yell that about any animal that I see. I, I think I do it most frequently with horses. I'd be like, horses! <laughs> do you yeah. do you ride horses at all? I have ridden horses, but it's not like a regular thing that I do. Right. Yeah. I love I love animals. Um but you don't have any, right? Because you probably because you travel. No. Travel yeah, with my schedule. And I was like, I'm not I'm never home when I was working on lights out, I was like, I'm never home. So I'd have to pay somebody. And then now like I'm always home. Right. But I also have a thing. I'm a germ freak and I'm like, I don't want the, I don't want the jug like jumping on my couch. Mm-hmm. I also am like not a pet in the bed thing either person either. So it's like, I'm just so particular with dirt and pop. I want a dog really badly, but I would, I don't know how I manage right. my mental neuroses at the same time. <laughs> yeah. You'd need to find like a really particular finicky dog also who also yes. didn't want to get its germs in your bed. Didn't- Exactly. Um, <laughs> Surly Bookworm says, when I buy a bag of plain M&Ms, I prefer to be at a table so I can pour them all out and sort by color. The largest groups get eaten first. Feel no urge with any other sort of M&Ms nor any similar candy. No, I'm not really a sorter myself. Uh, that you might want to get checked for autism 
<laughs> no, but it's just that M&M's. Might be. I mean, maybe that's the proof. Okay, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that, no, I've never, no, I don't divide anything into categories. There, I don't think there's any specific way that I eat anything. But you do have a tattoo of a pastry on your wrist, right? I do. That is my spirit pastry. <laughs> and what is the story and- behind <laughs> that? So I went to South America. I went to Argentina, uh, like a little around this time last year. My nephew was studying abroad. He was in college and studying abroad. And my sister, his mom, and I were like, let's go visit him because we love travel and he's there. So let's go experience. And so we went. And at the time, I had just become vegan not long before that. But I'll cheat occasionally with like a pastry or something like that. So my sister told me about this cookie pastry called an alpha, alpha hora. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and they were sold everywhere that w- they were there. And my, one of my sister's coworkers told her like, you have to try alpha whores when you're there. So we went and then I had one and I was like, Oh, I was like, this is good. And I was told like, that's not even like the best kind of alpha hora. So we went, and kind of went on like a spree and like a mission to find the best alpha hora in Buenos Aires. And so we, oh, I was eating like five a day, I think, just trying to figure <laughs> yeah. out. And they're so good. And so I was like, what can I do to like, just remember this experience, but also like, not just the alpha whore experience, but like this trip mm. and my family and being so proud of my nephew for be excelling and just being another, uh, like, uh, product of just like black excellence. I was like, how can we celebrate this? And so I, I was it. like, let's get tattoos. What did they and my nephew like? didn't do it. Oh, sorry. Well, oh sorry. God. I stepped on that. What was the last thing you said? Oh, I said my nephew didn't do it. Oh. My nephew's such a by the book, like <laughs> I'll, re- I'll regret that later on Candace. And so he didn't do it. He's like, an old soul, but my sister and I both did it. Yeah. And, uh, oh, the, ex- the experience of the alpha whore is just, it's, it's a cookie slash pastry and there's different kinds, but the most popular is a chocolate covered. It's like two wafers and in the middle is dulce de leche mm. and then, uh, and then covered in chocolate. And there's some that are more like, uh, like homemade and there's some that are like, they're sold at like their version of Starbucks that are just prepackaged and you can buy. And, but, we didn't have one that we didn't like. They're just all delicious. That sounds so good. It I mean, makes me think of this. Snapchats. That's for when we talk about snacks. Candace, snacks. it was so nice having you on the show and getting to know you. Thank you so much. I didn't even, I should tell you, um, I think that someone retweeted you into my timeline and then I was looking at your tweets and like, you know, I liked what you said and I agreed with a lot of it. Um, and then I watched some of your stand up and it's like, oh, you're really funny. And then I thought I want to have you Thank on you. the show. And then I remembered that Greg Heller, I, I believe he had mentioned you to me a while ago. So then I'm like, wait, is Candace Thompson the one that you mentioned? He said, yes. By the way, he says hi. He wants you to know. He, wait, what, let me find his exact yeah. text. Um, it was... Say hi to Candace for me. I'm a big fan of hers as a comic and a person. Oh, tell him I said hello. You know, Greg was great. He's another one of those guys. It's just like, I really think that he's out here uh, doing what he can to like make this industry because it is full of crappy people like doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So tell everyone where they can find you and plug whatever you'd like to plug. Um, yeah, everyone can find me on social media at jokes by Candace at C A N D I C E, not A C E. Um, 
So that's social media. And then I do have a website, CandiceThompsonComedy.com. So for when things open back up and when we're still start performing again, you can go there to look at my tour dates. Um, and also the comedy store. I'm a regular there. So when that opens back up, I perform there all the time. Um, and my podcast, The Struggle with Candace Thompson, you know, uh, you can find that on all podcast platforms and YouTube. And please subscribe, rate, review if you like what you're hearing. I've been saying if you like what you're hearing, but even if you didn't particularly care for <laughs> this or that episode, just subscribe, rate, and review well. Five stars, please. Anyway, it helps out the show so much. Tell your friends. <clears throat> um, listen to my podcast with Greg Fitzsimmons called Childish. And follow me on social media at Allison Rosen on Twitter and Instagram. Go to AllisonRosen.com for everything else. Also, I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen, um, where you can watch videos of the episodes and all sorts of behind the scenes stuff there. I'm also on Cameo, cameo.com slash Allison Rosen. Um, what am I forgetting? I don't know. Again, Candace, thank you so much. You are welcome. Thanks for having so me. So great having you. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? 